Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. If you're a Spoonie or caregiver, you're already familiar with the importance of taking care of your mental health as part of a whole person approach to healing. But there are so many options out there, and many either feel impersonal or are inaccessible due to exclusionary pricing and long wait times. When you're living with complex conditions, you need to streamline your care as much as possible, too. And with Mood Health, you can do just that. With personally designed plans starting at just $45, appropriately vetted practitioners, and a concierge who takes you every step of the way, Mood is a simple, affordable, and convenient solution with therapy, psychiatry, and medication management all in one place. Mood's amazing clinicians actually care about you, and long-term relationships are prioritized over quick fixes. Go to moodhealth.com and use code INVISIBLE10 for $10 off your first session. You can thank me later. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Kendall Rayburn. This is an interview that has been like two years in the making. I'm so happy we're finally sitting down to chat. Kendall is a blogger, content creator, fashion maven, and she's living with endometriosis and also mom to a child on the autism spectrum. So we're going to talk about all of this stuff. There's a lot to cover, Um, but Kendall, it is such an honor to have you on the show. And I'm so excited to really dig into this conversation with you. We've been waiting to do this for too long. The anticipation, you know, the anticipation (laughs) of, of two years. I'm just so happy that we're here. Yeah, same. And I'm so excited to be able to get your story out to, to my audience as well, because gosh, there is, there's a lot of, of deep experience here. So let's start from the beginning. (laughs) Buckle up indeed. (laughs) Um, Let's start from the beginning. Can you talk to us about when and how you first realized that you had something going on physically? And also when you started realizing that something was going on with your son, Wyatt as well? Yeah, sure. Um, So I had my first period at 14 and I just remember being in so, so much pain and I wasn't sure what was happening with my body. Um, and at the time I was living with my mother and I told her, you know, I'm experiencing all this pain. Is this normal? You know, cause she was the female that I went to for things like that. Um, and she told me I was being a drama queen mm. that everyone has pain my pain was no big deal. Um, this is the BS narrative that has been sold to women since the yeah. dawn of time. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but it was like, it was coming from my mom, you know what I mean? And like, that's always stuck in my head. Um, but I, I knew that there was something going on. I would say when I was 14, wow. um, I could tell right away. It was just, it was just too, too much pain. 
Um, and then with Wyatt, uh, I have a nephew on the autism spectrum, so I'm pretty similar, you know, or familiar with, with that. Mm. So with Wyatt, I actually knew at 18 months when he was 18 months old, I just had a feeling. And I remember bringing him to the pediatrician and telling them, you know, he's the eye contact isn't where it should be. Like he wasn't like babbling. Um, and I like had this whole list of concerns that I brought to the doctor and they said, you know, it's too young to tell he's too young to, you know, test, come back in a year. If the same, if, if nothing changes, but mothers always know. Yeah. And moms always know. And so in the, in like the, in between when I brought him to the doctor and then when I, that whole year, um, I sought out for early intervention through the state and got him speech tested. And so I, I knew pretty early on that there was something going on and my husband did too. Wow. And why it's your eldest, right? Yep. Okay. And how old is he now? He's 10 years old. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So, um, when you, so there are two stories here that we're going to try to sort of tell concurrently, right. You know, mm-hmm. going back to your reproductive health. So at 14, you're in pain over your first period, you realize something is wrong between then and now, what has happened? How did you get diagnosed yeah. with endometriosis? Like, what have you done to try and get a handle on your chronic pain? Well, I pretty much just dealt with it. Um, until I was old enough to realize what was happening, like realizing that I was kind of being gaslit the whole time, you know? Um, and you know, I suffer with anxiety, depression, PTSD, all of those things from childhood experiences. So the way I grew up wasn't the best circumstances. I didn't have much of any support. Um, I was, you know, kicked out of my house when I was 15, um, lived with friends for the remainder of high school. Um, when high school was over, I drove down to me to try to like establish a relationship with my dad. That's where he's from. Um, my parents divorced when I was three. So it, it had been a long time. And so I went down there trying to build this relationship with him. It didn't work. He has another family. He has other kids. He's moved past. He doesn't want to have anything to do with me. So then I come back up to Michigan and thank goodness I did at that time. Um, because I ended up meeting my husband at a coffee shop while I was living in my car. Wow. Um, and he knew he, he told me that the first time he met me, like he knew we were going to get married, you know, and I was always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because of my upbringing, I'm not you know, it was hard for me to get close to people. Um, but then we got married. We got married when I was 21. Um, we moved up North to go to school at Lake Superior state in the UP of Michigan. And it was there that I finally saw an OBGYN that said, you probably have endometriosis. Um, and I don't think that I would have got diagnosed that early if it wasn't for my husband pushing because at that point I was so convinced that it was all in my head and that it was me and that it was normal. Um, that I didn't, I didn't really listen to what anybody said. Hmm. Um, but he's like, you know, we have to go to the doctor and we have to get this figured out and took me to my appointment. And, uh, you know, the doctor immediately wanted to do a laparoscopy to go in and see what was going on and was able to do it pretty quickly. 
um, from that appointment. And she said, you know, you have endometriosis and it's pretty bad. Um, they said it's, it's bad enough to where we think that, you know, if you and your husband plan on having children, you need to start now. That's gotta be scary to hear at 21. Yeah. I was like 20, 22 at the time, like so young, you know, I was in college. I was really struggling to attend my classes. Um, I ended up having to drop out of the university and go to university of Phoenix online. Um, that sounds about right. I couldn't make it. I couldn't make it to my classes. Um, but so then after, you know, we had my, we had my surgery, we started, you know, trying to get pregnant and the doctor said, you know, there's some possibility that it could take you a little bit longer. Don't give up faith, you know? Um, so we tried to have Wyatt for about a year, nothing happened. And the day that we were supposed to go in to talk fertility treatments was the day I tested right before my appointment and it was positive. Wow. And I got to my appointment and they're like, let us retest you. So I took a test there. It was negative. Oh man. Oh, how crushing. To the hospital to get blood work done. And it said, it said that I was pregnant. Um, so it was like a whole journey, you know, to conceive. Um, my pregnancy was so easy with Wyatt. It was really, really like a breeze. Like my endo pain was gone. It was the first time in my life where I didn't feel pain when I would move. And that's wild. Yeah. It was, it was like, it was just like somebody had just sucked all the pain right out of me. You know, it was just crazy. Um, and then I gave birth and then, uh, I had, they found out at the hospital that I had preeclampsia, um, something that's common women with endo. Um, but we had no idea <laughs> until the day I gave birth. Cause I was so swollen up my legs, my feet, everything. Um, but then about what, two, three weeks after I had Wyatt, the pain started coming back. And then at that point, my husband and I were like, okay, do we try it for another, you know, do do we do this? And so we started trying for our second, um, this time after a year, nothing happened. And I ended up being put on a Clomid for, you know, fertility. Um, and then we conceived within like two months of starting that medication, which was pretty, pretty fast. You didn't have to go to IVF or anything like that. No, no. Um, it just took, it just took a little bit longer. We just had to be a little bit more patient. Um, but then we had Levi. And then once we had Levi, they, you know, my medical team and I discussed it and they said, the only way your pain is going to get better is if we take out your uterus. Um, so I had my uterus taken out in 2014. And then in 2015, they went back in and took the ovaries and my tubes. And then six months later, I was in menopause. Right. Which is a whole other thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 26 years old, having terrible night sweats. And I remember going like being in the grocery store with my kids and going to the freezer section when I'd have a hot flash and just opening up the freezer door and just standing there for a minute. I'm just like, I need this people. It must like, be the most wonderful relief relief oh when my, that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Wow. So, yeah. and, and also to this day, you've continued to have surgeries, excision surgeries, ablations, things like that, that you and I discussed mm-hmm. before we yep. started the interview. How many surgeries do you think you've had up to this point? I've had eight. Wow. And yeah. what's your chronic pain like? Uh, it's terrible. 
Yeah. So would you say, I mean, because we hear a lot in the endometriosis, um, in the dialogues and narratives around endometriosis, particularly the ones that come from medical institutions, right? Right. Get pregnant, it'll help your pain go away or, you know, have all of your organs removed and it'll make the pain go away. But would you say that is true given your experience? No, absolutely. I I regret my hysterectomy a lot. Um, I regret it because, you know, obviously it's the choice to give up having more of a family. My husband and I always wanted, you know, a whole gaggle of kids. (laughs) Um, and there's also something super, uh, how do I say it? Very, it impacts your mental health. Just knowing that you can't have a kid, like knowing that you can't get pregnant again and also feeling like you're missing something like you're empty inside. Um, I remember when I had my uterus taken out, they put me in the labor and delivery floor. That's really hard. Wow. Of all the places to put you. Yeah. And I remember getting out of surgery and it was the same hospital that had given birth to Levi my second. Mm -hmm. Um, and so every time a child's born, they play this song over the speakers and I'm sorry. I remember being in that hospital by myself and just bawling like every time I heard it because I knew that that would never be for me you know and that was that was when I first started to realize like just how much it was going to impact me but at the time it was also something that was offered to you as a solution right in my mind I was like I have these two kids I know for sure one of them is special needs I have to do whatever I can do to be the best mom. Like I have whatever they're, they're going to offer up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it because it's worth a shot. It's better than what I'm dealing with now. Yeah. So I trusted them. I trusted them in the same doctor that did my uterus. My ovaries was the same doctor that sat me down when my pain came back and told me there was no way I could have endometriosis. Oh my God. If they remove my uterus, if they remove my ovaries, there's, there's scientifically no way that it can come back. And we all know that's not true. Yeah. I knew that wasn't true. And I remember sitting there looking at him and just feeling like, you know, I put so much of my trust and my faith in him. Um, it was, it was heartbreaking. I wonder as well, cause I mean, you mentioned also your circumstances growing up and like having yeah. anxiety, depression, PTSD. Yeah. You know, the mental health impact of not only living with chronic pain since you were of reproductive age, right? Right. Um, but also being gaslit for so many years, mm-hmm. you know, putting your faith and trust in a system that completely failed you. Right. Um, that's got to compound all of those things, right? Did anyone ever at any point also say, like, hey, how about? therapy for support. No, never. I wish. And, and also as, as a parent of a special needs kid, no one ever said like, Hey, what about therapy? Nope. Wow. Nope. Never. I mean, this is the thing I say, wow, but this is the thing I hear over and over again, you know, and it's incredibly frustrating. I'm also wondering what it's looked like for you is you've become a more educated patient, right? Like obviously you're diagnosed with endometriosis in your early twenties. Mm-hmm. 
when you were diagnosed, did you have any idea what that meant? And like, no idea, no clue. So how, how did you find information? Did you talk to doctors? Did you rely on them to give you the correct information? And like, what did that look like? I did a lot of researching on my own, Mm -hmm. like going to the, going to the school library. Like this was before Instagram and and Pinterest and social media, where I feel like the the information is just easier to find now um, than it was before. But I remember like printing sheets out and like physically taking them to my doctor and asking about what, what about this? What about this? And them having no idea what I was talking about. Um, and at the time, like I said, my husband and I were young, we were, you know, we're new parents. Um, I couldn't afford to pay out of pocket for excision surgery. The only option available was ablation. It was something that I had done several times. Um, and the pain always came back within weeks. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, and that's, what's available to most women still today, which is mind blowing. It is completely mind blowing. I mean, do you have hope that what we understand in the medical literature about endometriosis, that not only that doctors will understand the wider implications, you know, of what's actually going on and and grasp reality here. But also, do you hope that there will be more research so that you don't have to live in chronic pain for the rest of your life? Right. I mean, it's a hope, but I honestly kind of stopped hoping, um, as negative as it sounds, it's actually a good thing because every time I would have a surgery, I would like mentally hype myself up. Like this is going to be it. This is going to be the one that works. I'm going to be such a better mom. I'm going to be such a better wife. Like this is going to be it. And then I was let down. Um, and after that happens time after time, after time, and you're, you know, the, the last time, like I saw this amazing specialist and I thought that was going to be it. You know, they're going to do this, this excision surgery. It's going to change my life. And it, it just, it didn't. And I will say excision surgery is very hard to recover from. Um, not a, not a cakewalk. Um, and at this point, I just feel like I I have to be done with the surgeries for now because they don't know enough about endometriosis to treat my specific case. Um, and that's stage four, you know, endometriosis. So I know it's going to come back. Um, and at this point I'm just kind of holding off until maybe, maybe there's something else out there. Um, I know a a ton of money has been invested in research, especially like in Australia where they're coming up with, you know, doing all this testing on women with, you know, all kinds of different medications they have out there and progress is being made, but I don't think in the immediate future, my life's going to change, you know? Mm. And it sounds like also having had the, the full hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. And obviously it changes your hormones that hasn't changed the fact that you're still having the same symptoms. Right. Yeah. So hormone therapy, perhaps not the most direct route there as well. I, I mean, it's tricky with it's, the hormones too. Yeah. I imagine. I mean, like I have, this is, I have to be on estrogen, but too much, too much estrogen will make my endo grow. So then I have to be on a little bit of progesterone to keep the estrogen balanced out. So my endo doesn't grow if I don't have estrogen, I have like these terrible mood swings. Honestly, I felt bad for my husband there for a minute. I was like, listen, William, like, this isn't me. This is, this is like the endometriosis talking. Um, but yeah, it's tough. 
do you think that some of that is also related to, I mean, it's interesting because it's like, you've mentioned a few times, like your role as a mom, as a wife and, mm-hmm. and saying to your husband, like, Hey, what's happening with my moods right now? Isn't me like, this is all related to everything that's going on physically. But do you think that like women are sold a lie? Yeah. I think it's, it's just for one thing, if a patient comes to you and they're telling you like, they're having super, super painful periods, like that should be an indication. You know what I mean? Like maybe there's something like, maybe we should look into this. The fact that it takes an average of like six to nine years to get diagnosed with endometriosis is just, there's so, so much suffering that shouldn't even be there. And the fact that it takes almost twice that amount of time for a woman of color is even more infuriating. Like, I feel like I was, I was looking at it through this bubble, you know, because doctors had always said endometriosis was a white woman's disease. Um, so when a person of color would complain, they would brush it off, you know, Mm. like nothing double gaslighting. Yep. And like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Instagram account endo black, there are amazing. We've had Lauren Cornegay on the show and she's amazing. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that account ed- educates me so much of how I can, you know, best represent women with endometriosis as a whole, because my experience is going to be way different from, you know, somebody else. Um, but it's just so sad that women have to suffer and go through all of this unnecessarily. Like, yeah. I mean, do you think that when you were 14, mm-hmm. if, if you'd been believed, Mm-hmm. and maybe caught the endometriosis when it was in an earlier stage, perhaps, do you think that you would have had a better outcome or do you think it wouldn't have made a difference? I would have definitely had a better outcome. Um, it was just, you know, I, it, and people ask me all the time, they're like, weren't you telling people, like, weren't you telling people I was telling, I was telling everyone. I just had no one around me that loved and cared about me enough to do something. Um, you know, my son, Levi, he suffers from anxiety too. And I got him therapy when he was three years old. Like I was on it. You know what I mean? Because I love my son. I want to do everything I can to help him. Um, and I just didn't have that kind of support. It sounds like a lot of this comes down to validation, being believed and yeah. support network, right? That like, yeah. if these things were offered readily, yeah, it could improve patient outcomes. And we might get to some answers a bit more quickly, right? Yeah. Would you say that's true, not just of something like endometriosis, but of a lot of other kinds of chronic illnesses and disabilities? Yeah. I, you know, there's just like countless stories of people being gaslit about their pain or, you know, the fact that they're uncomfortable in their bodies. And it's just, I don't know. It's so hard because those people are asking for help and they're just, you know, falling upon ears that aren't going to do anything about it. So how are you managing your pain day to day? What does that look like for you? Um, it's pretty difficult. (laughs) I'm in a lot of pain. Um, most of my day, um, before when like, I was like, I think after like my fourth surgery, I started taking painkillers. Um, and it was to the point where I was taking like four or five a day, uh, just to get through the day. And I, I just couldn't do that anymore. Like I can't do the painkillers anymore. I have them. I take them on bad days, but most of the time I try to suffer through. 
um, why, why is that? Oh yeah. Marijuana. But I was going to say, why is that? Why did you decide to, to sort of lay back on the painkillers? And I presume these are prescription. Yeah. They're prescription painkillers. Um, because my doctors keep warning me about the painkillers because I've taken them for so long, for so many years, the, the doctor that I went to last, he told me that I, I have the highest, uh, pain management score he's ever seen. So like every time you go in to get a script filled for pain medicine, they mark that on your file. And he said, I had the highest number of, you know, and that's like a huge indicator that, you know, you can fall victim to getting addicted to painkillers. And I was so terrified of that happening. Mm. Um, because, you know, my mom is an alcoholic and I grew up with that. And that's the reason why I don't drink. Um, but I think that also scared me because I never want to be like that for my kids. Yeah. Um, being a mom gave me so much more will to fight for myself and so much more power than I felt before. Mm. It's an incredible thing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So you've, you've laid back on the painkillers and you're using marijuana, medical marijuana. Yep. Yep. Um, because I went to my doctor and honestly, I have never told anyone that I use marijuana. Wow. publicly. This is my first time saying that ever. I've never said wow. about it on my Instagram or my social media, because I have brands that I work with that would drop me, but Whoa. I appreciate you saying it because I want to so be fun. honest. Yeah. I want to be honest. Cause it helps me so much. Um, it helps me so much. It helps me manage my pain. Um, I call myself garage Kendall in the evenings. <laughs> um, after the boys are in bed, I go out there and I light one up and within, you know, 30 minutes, I feel so good. My body feels so good. And, um, you know, growing up, I tried, tried pot, you know, a couple of times. Um, but I never thought I would be somebody that would use it every day. And I feel like a part of me never wanted to admit it because I didn't want to admit to myself that I rely on it to get through my day. Hmm. if that makes any sense. No, it, it actually, it really does make sense. And and the thing about marijuana too, is that there's so much stigma around it because of the quote unquote war on yes. drugs, which is, which yep. itself was sort of a, a, a BS, um, endeavor, right. You know, um, yeah. and we know that this is a plant that is helping people. And if it's something that's helping you with your pain, you can't really argue with that. Right. I mean, not only the pain, but my anxiety, it like, it's the only time of the day where my brain feels like it's functioning normally, (laughs) like, and not so sped up and crazy all the time. Um, and so once I realized how much it could help me, I just dove into that. Like I would rather, you know, pop outside of the garage than take a painkiller. For me, for me personally, but I still do take my painkillers on really, really bad flare days. Um, yeah, the majority of the time I manage with marijuana. That makes a lot of sense to me. Are, how is it also accessing marijuana in Michigan? Is it legal? Yeah, it's totally legal. There's dispensaries everywhere here. It's so easy. Um, like before I had, you had to have a medical marijuana card to even shop and I would have to drive out to like Ann Arbor. Now they have dispensaries like at every corner here. Yeah. So it's so, so easy to, you know, swing by, pick up, you know, whatnot, very accessible. What does it look like though, when you travel, like if you were going to go abroad for a couple of weeks and you couldn't pack your weed. Yeah. Like how, how does that just give you anxiety? 
yes, it gives me terrible anxiety. Um, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm bringing it up. I don't want no, to no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I travel for work pretty often, you know? Um, so every time I travel, I just, I, I bring my painkillers. I bring my full size ice pack, my full size heating pad. I bring all the icy hot, like hmm. everything. Um, but it's, it's pretty difficult not having that, um, you know, when traveling, because especially like what I do for work, you know, I do a lot of like plus size fashion modeling and stuff like that. Um, so I'm on my feet all day. Yeah. So it's definitely challenging. I can't wait till the stigma is gone around that and more people open up, um, and try it. And I also have really bad nausea all the time because my pain is so bad. Right. Um, they're like, helps with it. Yeah. And it helps so, so much. Like Mm. it's hard for me to eat a lot of times, um, just to even have an appetite. So I was going days, like just, just not eating anything. Um, so it just wasn't good. I feel like now I'm in like a better rhythm and I'm able to handle my flares a lot better than I was before. And a huge part of that is therapy. Mm. Um, I started seeing a therapist like three years ago. Her name is Maria. She's a freaking godsend. Like, I don't know. I feel this like maternal connection with her. Like, like, I don't know if, if she was my mom, my whole life would have been different, but she's helped me work through so, so many things, um, including my pain, including, you know, past traumas and offers up so much good advice for parenting a child with special needs. I had no idea how much I was carrying around until I made that appointment and talked to her for the first time. I had no idea. And also how carrying around a lot of that emotional trauma can also intensify the physical pain. I'm sure in right. many ways. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Like on the days where I'm super anxious or, you know, have like a bad depressive episode, my, those are the days that my pain's the worst because it's all connected. Yeah. It, and, and I mean, one of the things I love about what you share on social media too, is that a lot of it is about the permission that you never got, you know, yeah. that, that you're offering validation and permission to like lean in on the days. If you don't feel good, sometimes you spend a day in bed and that's okay. Right. So is that also something that you give yourself permission to do when you need to do? When you um, I want to say, yeah, but the way that my brain works, I can never let myself rest. Like it's very hard for me to not, um, like want to get my work done even on days where I'm having a bad flare, like I'll be in bed with my heating pad, like, and my computer just, you know, um, but there, then there are some days where it's just too much and you have to, you have to put everything else on pause and everything else just has to wait. Absolutely. I, I want to also um, sort of switch back as well and, and talk about Wyatt a little more. Um, so yeah. far, what we've talked about is that, you know, you realized when he was 18 months, but you got the official diagnosis about two years mm-hmm. after that. So mm-hmm. what has it looked like in terms of support services that have been available to you and like the long-term vision of what that looks like. Cause from what I understand, especially when it comes to the autism spectrum, childhood support systems are there, but there's always this concern about adulthood. Right. Um, so what does that look like for you having become someone who's had to like learn how to advocate for yourself in many ways? 
And of course, advocating for your own son. I mean, I'm sure it's very healing in mm-hmm. its own ways, but what is that journey looking like? And what is the, the care around that for him? Well, since I felt like so, so strongly about it, I just kind of didn't ever give up because I knew, I just knew in my heart, like that mother's instinct, like you have to trust it. Um, so after we did, got the speech evaluation, we found out he had speech delay. They did some like hearing testing to make sure he was hearing properly. Um, but the early on program here in Michigan is really, really great. They send people to your house to do like different therapies and show you how to do it. So you can do it at home. And, um, you know, I had started like to rewind things a little bit when I was in college up North with my husband, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to have a nine to five, like a regular job. I knew a desk job wasn't going to be it. Um, I was super passionate about writing. I was going to school for writing. Um, I started a blog on a whim, started sharing my endometriosis story, made connections with women online. Um, and then that started becoming something that was supporting my family to the point where my husband didn't have to work. Um, and everything that I was doing was sustaining all of us. And it, and it still is like still to this day, my husband actually just started a job this week working at my kid's school with, uh, special needs kids, kids on the autism spectrum as a paraeducator. I love that. Because he's, we saw the difference that having a good support system made for Wyatt. Um, we got, so, we've been so, so lucky. I've, there's never been a moment where I've been afraid to send him off to school to be with his teachers and his team. I trust them. Like I, I text his teachers all the time. Like we're very connected. Um, and this year, Wyatt's in fifth grade and he is full mainstream. I was going to ask whether he was being mainstream. That's amazing. Full on mainstream. And I mean, Wyatt went from only being able to say one word for so, so long. You know what I mean? To now he's like this like 10 year old little guy. That's just super chatty too. (laughs) He loves people. Like he's super empathetic too. Um, He's so it's, it's funny. Cause like people say like, people on the autism spectrum don't have a sense of humor or like they don't understand humor. And that couldn't be further from the truth with Wyatt. He picks, he picks up on everything and just is hilarious. Um, but he's got like this special power about him that he can just make you feel so good. He's got this sweetness, you know, he still wants to snuggle and like. Well, cause when he says it, he means it. Yeah. But there's no pretense. <laughs> yeah. Everybody that's been in his life has been like, man, he is so special. Like his mm. teachers all love him. Um, and this, te- this teacher that he has in fifth grade is a male. So I wasn't sure how he was going to do with that. Mm. But um, my husband was like, I just saw them in school today. They're holding hands in the hallway, walking back to school from lunch. Um, and yeah, it just warms my heart. Um, we went through last year was the first time that I really realized how other kids viewed Wyatt. Mm. Um, because if we've been to playgrounds before where we show up and we're not the quietest bunch, um, and people would leave because they didn't mm. want their kids playing with them or, wow, yeah. Or we've had people tell us that they're uncomfortable being around Wyatt. Um, Did they give a reason why? Because he's special needs. They don't know how to interact with them. 
it's just so limited, isn't it? Like that. Yeah. Wow. I, and to all those people, I just said, you know what, you're missing out then, you know? Yeah. It's oh, well. their loss. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, I remember volunteering to come with them to a field trip at school and they were picking teams and like nobody wanted white to be on their team. And so we ended up having to like do our own thing that day. And I just remember coming home and, you know, like passing things off to my husband and just going upstairs and just, it just hurts my heart. It hurts way worse than anything that could happen to me. You know, um, this year he's been bullied a couple times at school always happens in the bathroom. Now he has a bathroom buddy that he walks with. Um, but yeah, some kids are just really cruel, you know, and they don't understand how to interact with people that are different than them. Yeah. What about, well, I mean, what about within the autism community? We also hear that there's like a lot of splintering, right? Like that, that the early, especially like in the eighties and nineties, like this take on autism was that it was something that was a defect that could be cured. Um, how does that compare to the autism communities that you're interacting with and the way in which you're looking holistically at, at Wyatt's growth and development? I have never looked at some, at Wyatt's autism as anything that would hold him back. To be honest, I don't. And I, I pump him up. Like, I think it's super cool that he can do math so easily or remember things. Like every time we travel, he remembers what hotel room we're in. He's <laughs> one time and he was reminding everybody or like we go to target and he's like, Oh mom, this is where you parked. Like mm. his memory is so he's got such a photographic memory. Yeah. Um, I remember we went on a road trip. We were driving to Disney and on the way home, he was telling me the exits that we needed to take in reverse order from the trip. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, I mean, that's like, that's a, that's an IQ thing. Yep. Like he is super smart. And that's something that's really, really special about him. Um, so yeah, sometimes he has trouble with social interactions, but at the same time, like he's going to do amazing things. Yeah. And he knows it, you know? Yeah. I I mean, I, well, and this is the interesting thing too, is that like for you having grown up in an environment where you didn't get support and where you weren't believed to now Mm -hmm. be raising a son who you believe in so completely and well both your sons that you believe in them so completely and that you're offering this level of advocacy for them as well and you're so fiercely caring and protective I mean it's do you often look at that difference the stark difference in the way that you grew up versus the way that you're raising your own children yeah Mm -hmm. totally I I think about how different things would be but then at the same time I don't think I would change it because I think I needed to be the person that I was to be Wyatt's mom. Wyatt has like, I've always been super empathetic because of my experiences, you know? Um, and I feel like Wyatt and I have this communication that we've always had since he was like a baby where just like, I get him. Like, I know what he's communicating. Like he could, like, I have this video of him and he was going, um, he was like, I want hush. Gosh. And I was like, oh, you want chips? Okay. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, there's something really special about, um, being an autism parent. Like you just connect with your kid on this whole other level. That's it's, it's like magical. Like I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just very, very appreciative of what he has taught me about being resilient and continuing to, you know, he does his best every day and, I know things are hard for him. Like, I know that, you know, he can't use, um, like the towel dryers and in bathrooms cause they're too loud. 
um, he tells me like every time we go in somewhere, he's like, it, it sounds to me like people are on a microphone. That's how loud it sounds to him all the time. Mm. So sometimes I just try to put myself in his shoes and think about all the things that he deals with on a daily basis, but like he never gives up. And that like seeing him do his thing has empowered me to like advocate for myself more. I don't know. It's, 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 well, it's, it's, it's not a vicious cycle. It's a gorgeous one. You know, it's like the opposite. You're sort of spinning in the opposite direction in the best way that like, instead you two have become supporters for each other and you're learning from each other all the time. It sounds like. And he picks up on me. One of the things that I've always been afraid of is like, I remember like the reason why I'm so empathetic is because I felt like I always had to know how everyone else was feeling when I stepped into a room growing up. Like I always had to, you know, keep tabs on my mom and be like, okay, is she mad today? Is this a day where I'm going to get hit? Like, do I, do I, do I need to protect myself? Like, I just felt like I was always on guard and, but at the same time that has allowed me to connect with people really deeply. And I needed those skills to be why. So when I found out about Wyatt and just like the way we reacted to it, I don't know if it would have been the same if I would have had a normal upbringing where everything was fine and, and dandy, you know? Yeah. I guess the nature nurture thing comes into question all the time when it comes to self-advocacy and mm-hmm. um, when you're in this kind of symbiotic relationship that the two of you have, you know, and it seems to me, no matter what, you've ended up in a place where you're doing awesome mom things and he's doing awesome Wyatt things and, you know, being able to build each other up that way. And what you're saying about like learning from him, his resilience, yeah, that's got to be a really incredible gift at the end of the day. So you've heard of life coaching, but have you heard of health coaching? A little over a year ago, I had no idea that the field existed or how supportive I would find it to be in my own life. And while this podcast has created incredibly fulfilling work for me as a Spoonie, I wanted to do something more tangible to support this community in addition to the ongoing discussions I host on the show. So I spent all of last year training as an integrative nutrition health coach and taking adjunct courses in functional medicine approaches to autoimmune healing. I'm now able to take this work off the air and into your life, helping you work toward transformation from surviving to thriving. Using my in-depth knowledge of lifestyle, nutrition, stress management, personal advocacy, personal experience, and more, I'm now able to work as your guide on the side, giving you the added support you need as you navigate industrialized medicine in your own search for healing. I'm offering individual coaching with group courses soon to come. If you're interested in learning more about health coaching and how I can support you, head over to calendly.com uninvisible to book a free 30-minute intake session. I'm so excited to connect personally with more members of this community and help you control the things you can control while working in harmony with your medical team and individual needs. Again, that's calendly.com slash uninvisible. Sign up now for your free 30-minute intake sesh. I can't wait to learn more about you. It really is. And everybody picks up on it. Like the friendship that Levi and Wyatt have, like they're best friends. Like they're always together. They share a room. Like we have and like this room used to be Wyatt's room, but they wanted to share a room. Like they wanted to do the, like they want to be together when they walk into school, they hold hands, like they're best buds. What a dream. Oh, it's so great. And they help each other out so much. Like 
the things that Levi has hard time with, Wyatt has an easy time with thing. Why, you know what I mean? So they're, they advocate for each other. Like Wyatt knows that Levi has anxiety and gets nervous. And so Wyatt pumps him up. And I know it's because Wyatt sees me pump him up and my husband pump him up. And like, he learns that from somewhere, you know, but I just feel like I'm, I, I, I might not have had the best childhood, but like these years of my life, like I never thought I would have this, Mm. you know? Oh, I love it. It's so, it's like, I I mean, I want to use the word wholesome. It's super wholesome, right? Like, but it's also, it's just, it's one of those things that like fills your heart back up. Yeah. Um, and knowing that like you can have a rough time, but there might be something else on the other side of that. Like that is really, that's great news. And I'm super open with them about my pain and mm-hmm. endometriosis. They both know what endometriosis is. Like they, talk about like two dudes who are going to know all about it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're going to be big advocates. That's for sure. Yeah. But like, so like if I'm having a bad day day and a bad pain day, I tell them right away. Mm-hmm. Cause I never want them to have to try to feel me out. Like his mom's sick today. You know, it's, I'm just super honest with them. And I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm in a lot of pain, but here's what we can do. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And it's so great. Cause my husband is, is the one that has picked up all the pieces for so long. Like he's been my caretaker pretty much, um, since we got married and this wasn't something that we knew when we got married, like he didn't sign on for all this, you know? Um, but he's like my biggest advocate and that's in and itself a whole other gift. Like, um, his mom passed away from cancer when we, when we first started dating, um, at that time I was living in my car and one night he was like, you know what? I'm not, you know, just come back to my house. And it was just him and his dad at that point. And I moved in with them. Wow. Like his girl, (laughs) I was his girlfriend moved in. Um, and his dad has become like my dad. Like Mm. I didn't, I never had a dad like that. And his dad cares about me and loves me so much. And I've never felt that from like a father figure. Um, so like, I have that now. Yeah. Like everything that I wanted when I was younger, everything that I had dreamt of, like I have it. Yeah. And knowing that it's out there too, that like, it's something that can be found and that can come to you as well. And I feel like people with chronic illness, like when you get diagnosed with a chronic illness, it's all doom and gloom. And you're told the things you can't do, you know, you're, you're so people are so hyper-focused on what you won't be able to do with your life. And it's super frustrating because I feel like people with chronic illness can like their opportunities are limitless. Like we can do everything that everybody else can do. It just might take us a little more time or we might have to approach it in in a different way. But I feel like that's like the main thing that I sharing my story has like brought me is like encouraging other people to go to the doctor. Like I've had, um, mothers message me and and say, you know, my daughter's having her period. She said she's in a lot of pain. Do you think that I should take her to the doctor? And I would say, absolutely. You know, or I've, and then I've had those same girls come back and say, I just got diagnosed with endometriosis. I'm 16. Wow. What should I do? Well, getting diagnosed that early in and of itself is probably a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, and it's just cool, like having, I feel like I can really make a change just by being honest, you know? Yeah. Just by opening up, sharing what you've gone through. It's, it's making other people see things more deeply. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm wondering as well, because what you're living with in terms of your chronic pain and also Wyatt's experience and, you know, like being mainstream in school and everything now, it's like you're, you both have invisible diagnoses. No one can look at you and go like, oh, that kid has autism or like, oh, that woman has endometriosis. But aside from within the medical system, obviously where you've had doctors who have gaslit you and, and also gaslit you over Wyatt, have, how often, or have you found yourself in situations socially where you've been confronted and, and had to validate the existence of either of your diagnosis to people who just didn't get it because they couldn't see it to, mm-hmm. to grasp it? Yeah. I remember, I remember we were checking out at a cash register and the cash re- cashier was saying hi to Wyatt and Wyatt wasn't responding. And she said, what's with your kid? Why is he so rude? Hey. And I had to explain to Wyatt, like, why she said that and that it wasn't his fault and that, you know what I mean? Like, and that people are going to look at him differently and view him differently and, um, not understand him his whole life. Um, and then with me personally, it's just, I feel like I'm just always like having explained my pain to people, um, and them thinking that it's not as bad as it actually is. And me having no way to show them how bad it is, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's hard. It's hard to communicate for sure. Well, cause you're already in pain. So it's like jumping through the extra hoop Yeah, of having I, to communicate changing, that. Like, you just have to have good people around you. Like for a while, I just didn't have good people around me. I didn't have like friendships that were the best. Um, I now have like a group of really, really badass women. I don't know if I can swear, but like, Oh, you just, can fully swear. Please do <laughs> just, just badass women that lift me up every day. And like, I can communicate with them. Like if I'm having a bad pain day and they'll door dash me cookies or like just having people like that, like I kind of had to make my own family and I feel so much more comfortable and like just more open to being myself, knowing that I have that support. Yeah. So I just, I just hope that Wyatt feels that support from us now, you know, I hope he Mm. can feel it and never is wanting it, you know? I mean, judging from what I've seen of him on social media and like talking to you now, it seems like he knows, he knows he's got that support system and like to be that secure. Yeah. He's got people that message just for him and they're like, Hey, Mm -hmm. how's Wyatt? Like, he's so inspiring, you know, for Mm. other autism moms who are seeing him speak and then seeing older videos of him not speak. And it's like, he did sign, he did sign language. He had a, um, like an iPad talker where he would point buttons that would make his sentences. Like he had a pecs book, like he went through everything. And now he's just on the other side, this totally changed kid. Like he's just blooming and it's awesome to watch. I mean, aside from the fact that you give him a secure upbringing so that he can bloom and you pump him up and all that kind of stuff, it sounds like a lot of what's involved here is also just like the patience through these new ways of communicating that like, you probably didn't know sign language when you gave birth to him. Right. But it's like learning these things alongside your kid Mm -hmm. so that they feel safe with you and knowing that like, it's going to take a little time, but devoting that time, like that seems to be something that also underlines a sense of security for him. I imagine. Yeah. He, um, I feel like he feels so comfortable with it because the people around him 
we're so comfortable with it. Like, cause it was just me, my husband and my father-in-law, um, as his circle of people for the longest time. And, and it, we'd go over to his papa's house. That's what he calls him. Um, and he has a big pex board on his wall. Like you should see his house. It's actually pretty unbelievable. He has every picture that the boys have drew him, like as his artwork in his home. Oh, that's <laughs> like, so sweet. You walk, you walk in there and people are like, like, what are you running some kind of daycare out of here? Like <laughs> there's all over, like he's such a proud papa. And like when Wyatt got that autism diagnosis, like he dove right in and did all the research he could. And, you know, it just helped William and I out so, so much just because it's hard. Like it's hard raising a kid on the spectrum. Um, there's so many different sensory things that you go through that you wouldn't even think about. Um, and it's super challenging, uh, like just having him be able to calm down to go to sleep at night, um, was a, was a struggle. Like now he's got that pretty down pat, but just little everyday things that you don't even think about until you're faced with them. But having that additional support also like outside of just his home base too, like knowing that his papa is also participating in, in what adjustments need to be made and interested. So it's like, it's the curiosity, it's the empathy, it's the interest in providing support beyond just home base. Right. And that's how he's blooming. Right. And we, we never, um, like stopped taking him out in public or, you know, cause I, I was like, if people look like, who cares why, you know, who cares? That's their problem. You know, like we're going to go about our day. We're going to have our day. Like he, um, wore headphones for a really long time. Anytime we'd go anywhere, just cause the noise was too much. He still does yeah. some, um, and he also used a chewy and s- still does sometimes. And I, just the looks that people give him, you know, um, but it, like, it doesn't face him at all. He's, he's just doing his own thing. Like he, he, the, the one great thing about him having autism is he does not care what anybody thinks of him. Like he is, yeah. honest. he'll tell you very, very honestly how he's feeling. And I love that about him. Like, I love that he's that confident and knows that like his autism makes him unique and special. And he knows it yeah. because that's what he's been told. I love that. So one of the things you mentioned earlier, um, with regard to endometriosis was mm-hmm. about, you know, how long it takes to get diagnosed and what treatment yeah. looks like if you're a woman of color versus yeah. a white woman, mm-hmm. you know, with the endometriosis in mind, but also with, with Wyatt and his autism diagnosis, can you see either of your experiences within the medical system being different? If either of you presented differently, I mean, it seems pretty obvious yeah, things would be different with the endometriosis, but also for the autism. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of moms, um, just like in in various groups and people that message me and like, I feel like if you're a person of color, your ability to be believed is taken away from you. And it's so sad. It's so sad. It just breaks. It like breaks my heart because especially like in the autism situation, like that's your child that's needing help. And like, if you go to your doctor and you're trying to express your concerns about your child and they're not believing you, you know, based on your appearance, like there was never a time where I walked into a doctor's room with Wyatt besides the one time where they're like, okay, yeah, let's wait a year. But like, there was never a time where I felt like I wasn't believed about what was going on with him. Like, I feel like people listened to me when I went in there and I said, these are my concerns with my son. This is what we got to do. Like, I didn't, I never got that second guessing. 
Yeah. And it's the children that suffer, you know? Mm. Well, and it's gotta be even more difficult when it's your child. Cause that's, I mean, I literally have always thought of it as like your heart outside your body. Yes. 100. Like, you can take it. You can take yeah. stuff yourself, but when it has to happen to your child. Right. Yeah. I mean, these injustices, would you say that like the inequities and injustices in the healthcare system with regard to race, gender, um, you know, sexual orientation, all of the breadth of identity, would you say that the way in which bias exists in the healthcare system is tantamount to its own public health crisis? Yeah. I feel like if things were, if people were believed and they got help sooner, it would make a huge difference, a world of difference. And it seems such a simple thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Listen to your patient, follow up, do, you know what I mean? Like, but for so, so long, like, like I said before, like it, they thought it was a white woman's disease, but that, it, that was because they only, it like, it like shows you right there. You know what I mean? Like they only cared about a white woman's pain, but they didn't care about your pain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like not. Yeah. Yeah. Like endometriosis. Sure. It was seen as a white woman's disease, yeah. but by the same token, it doesn't change the fact that you had doctors tell you to get pregnant and get a hysterectomy and it still right. has left you in pain. I mean, right. there's a lot yeah. that needs to be done. There's a ton that needs to be done. Um, I also think that seeing a female doctor, like when I went and saw her, she was the one that told me endometriosis might be it. And she knew what I was talking about because she had diagnosed a lot of women with endometriosis. And I feel like every male that I went to just dismissed me. And I, I hate to make it like, it's not, I know the guy who did my surgery this past time was wonderful, but the majority of men will, will shoot you down, you know? Do you think that means that like, I mean, one way to avoid that, could it be just screening male OBGYNs a little bit more carefully because they, you know, or screening, screening those who don't have uteruses a little bit more carefully. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in my experience with doctors, they are really good at making you think they know what they're talking about. Like they're really good at making you think that they have you figure it out and they know your plan and they know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Like when, I, when they told me they wanted to take out my uterus, I fully believed that this was going to do yeah, it. This was the solution. Yeah. This was the solution. This was going to be the thing that like, cause I was in so much pain. And then at the same time, chasing around Wyatt and having a kid that just doesn't stop, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I wish I would have, I wish I would have done more research before I had my hysterectomy but I was so like, I was in, what's a good word for it? Just like entranced with the idea that it, a surgery would fix it. Well, and this was what you were talking about before, right? About, you know, making a conscious decision not to focus on solutions. Right. That sometimes it's just about acceptance. Yep. Which doesn't make it a, a pleasant experience either. I mean, the acceptance part, it's not easy and it doesn't mean it's not fraught. Right. But I feel like when I finally did accept myself and like all that I was able to do, all that I, all that I'm not able to do, I just feel more at peace with things because like I was, then I was able to communicate that to my husband, my kids, like they're, they know, you know, they know that like, 
I can't go to the zoo anymore and walk around for two hours. Like I just physically can't do that. Um, they know it was so cute. Like I was on the couch the other day and my stomach was bothering me. And I told Levi who was in the room, he's like, are you in pain right now? I said, yeah, my stomach's bothering me a little bit. And he left and he went and got my heating pad and he's seven, like he's seven years old. He went and got my heating pad and brought it to me, sat next to me and said, mom, do you want to watch the little mermaid? It's, I know it's your favorite. Like, let's put on little mermaid and just snuggle on the couch. And like, that's so sweet. I know. I'm like, how does a seven-year-old know what to do in that situation, you know, because they do, this is the thing is like, I mean, it's interesting. Cause you mentioned earlier that like, yeah, kids can be cruel, but they can also be some of the most empathetic, yes. straightforward, honest creatures. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. about encouraging that in them, isn't it? Right. There were, um, Wyatt really wanted to do the talent show, like the first year of elementary, but he couldn't get up on stage by himself. So these four girls, they were fifth graders went on stage with him and just like danced in the background because all Wyatt wanted to do was dance. Oh, that's to gorgeous. Trolls, to one of the trolls, like can't stop the feeling song. Yeah. <laughs> all he needed to do was get up there and dance. And like, he was so nervous to do it by himself. And these amazing girls like rallied around him, practiced with him after school. Like, so having your child be one of the good ones makes all the difference in yeah. it's like Wyatt, Wyatt's lives, you know, like he has one, one kid that he plays with every day at recess, but it only takes that one kid to make his day and to make him feel special. And well, just like, it only takes one really good friend for any of us, you know, like having an ally, we all are, we all want people who care, Mm -hmm. you know, it seems, it seems like it's sort of reductionistic in some ways. Right. Cause it's like, it's that simple, but cause it isn't, but Mm -hmm you know, being able to create those bonds and being encouraged to do that and supported in doing that by your family and your extended family. It's like, these are the things that, that make good people. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really cool about Wyatt's school is, um, they didn't have an autism program prior to, uh, his teacher kind of starting kicking it off. Um, and now they have two autism classrooms in the school, but there's the kids that Wyatt went to kindergarten with are in fifth grade with him now. Mm. So they all grew up in the same classroom yeah. together. And now they have this like super strong bond. Like he's got this, he's got this one friend that is totally nonverbal, but like he gets her and like mm. he connects with her and he makes time for her. And like, they just support each other. No, I just, I just think it's really cool. Like if you like when Wyatt got his diagnosis, like we immediately tried to find programs that were for kids on the spectrum and like for other kids like him. So he could connect with his peers because mm. he couldn't connect with his peers, you know? Um, and I also think that having Levi, like I was so nervous, um, when I was pregnant with Levi, cause I was like, how is this going to be for Wyatt? And are we the still going to give him the attention that he needs? Like what if Levi feels like he's like this child that's pushed aside, which a lot of siblings of special needs kids feel like, you know? Um, so I always just try to make him know that he is like just as important as why it is. I feel like that's something that's like always going on in my head. Um, mm-hmm. it's like never making him feel less than cause his brother's different. Um, but I feel like just the way they balance each other out, they're going to be together their whole lives, you know? Yeah. And that's that. comforting for me. To know yeah, that that's 
when I'm gone, when my husband's gone, you know, Papa's gone, that he's going to have his brother and his brother loves him unconditionally for exactly who he is, mm-hmm. is a gift. Yeah. I love that. I, I'm wondering as well, like, cause we haven't really talked about this because obviously at some point along your journey, using social media and growing your business out of your presence online, mm-hmm. you decided to share about living with endo and mm-hmm. about Wyatt's experiences. So what inspired you to do that? I just felt like since I naturally like just love to write, I love to put things down and it's like a way of like healing for me, um, just to like get my feelings out there. Um, cause at first, you know, I was just writing these blog posts and about endometriosis. And then I remember at one point I had six followers on my blog and like, they were women with endometriosis and like, I, they would like, we encouraged each other. We built this support group. Like it's just, it makes you feel so much better knowing that you're not alone in anything but especially something that causes you daily pain. Like, you know, like I'm in pain right now, but I know that I'm not alone. Like, I know there are millions like of women that are in pain too, just like me every day. Um, it's comforting. I'm sure. But it's also like, well, yeah, like this yeah, should be it, happening. Right. Like the injustice of it is right. Shocking. Right. I truly hope it improves, but it's just, it's just always nice to know that you're not alone. Yeah. And well, and, and you're talking about that, about with Wyatt too. It's like, you know, finding community has been kind of key for both of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I love that. So I'm wondering if, if someone's tuning into this episode and I'm sure loving, you know, the story that you're telling and all the shares that you're, you're sharing, um, if you could crystallize your experience into sort of like top three tips for someone who maybe suspects something's going on with themselves or with a loved one, or maybe they've been diagnosed with endo. Um, or even this could be like advice to your younger self, but like, what are three, three things that you would offer as advice? Um, I think first is like just realizing what's going on with yourself, writing down your symptoms, writing down what you're experiencing. So you have something physical, like, if you decide to follow up with the doctor, you know, it can be so nerve wracking, like going in and talking about this, having something physical to look at and to show somebody like when you can't verbalize what you're talking about, you know what I mean? Like what you mean, yeah. it gives um, you a, a literal physical signifier yeah. and something so tangible, like writing down, keeping a record, um, reaching out and telling somebody that, you know, loves you unconditionally and can be your support because you need support. Like, if you have endometriosis, you're going to need support daily. You know, if you have a child with autism, you're going to need support daily. Um, but sometimes making that first step and reaching out and telling somebody like, like, I really need you right now. Like I'm super vulnerable. This is what I'm going through. And just having somebody else to have your back is so, so helpful. And then following up with a doctor, like making the appointment, you don't have to be referred to a specialist to see a specialist for endometriosis. And like, that is something that I didn't know. And I wish that if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have had all those ablations done. Like I would have sought out a specialist and had been more of an advocate for myself. I love that. Those are, they're all such practical tips too, because they're 
things that like you can put into action right now. Also start therapy. <laughs> yeah. That's a big one, right? Right away. Like a therapist yeah. will change your life. They will help you navigate things that you didn't think you could and lift weights off your shoulders that you didn't even know you had. So, and, and in many cases, navigate the injustices of the healthcare system yeah. because it's going to be an emotional roller coaster no matter how you slice it, right? Yeah, you're going to have people look you straight in the eye and tell you that you're lying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you have to be able to com- combat that and come back and, you know, not let those people kind of beat you down with their own thoughts. Yeah. And also find the inner fortitude, right? To, to know yeah. when you are right and when someone is. Yeah. Not. I feel like it was so ingrained in me that like I, I gave up hope, you know, advocating for myself, but it wasn't until Wyatt and Levi, you know, they like gave me this purpose. Like, I want my life to be better. Like I don't deserve to be in this pain. They don't deserve to have a mom that's in pain all the time. Like, I wish I would have had that confidence in myself and like that love for myself before I was a mom. But it sounds like you found someone in your husband as well who helped you get there. Yeah. Thank goodness. He was raised normally because (laughs) I want to give William like the biggest high fives. I mean, he is, he's really awesome. Yeah. And the fact that now he's working with kids with autism every day, like, I guess when he was, he just, when he just did his interview, um, he's like, everyone was crying. Like we just were, it's just our world, you know? Well, and, and because there's so much heart and so much care and, Mm -hmm. and, putting all of who you are on the line in, in what you want to do to help serve others. I mean, when you have your own experience and then you can reach outside yourself, that's, that's what you're doing. That's what he's doing. Like, this is what these communities are built on. And that's, what's so exciting too, is to find people who are like-minded. And there's so, so many women sharing their stories on Instagram and, you know, social media. And it's, it's so awesome to see just all of those, all of those different voices being heard in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because social media is like this double-edged sword, right? Like it can be a time suck and it can be something that can actually negatively affect your mental health. But if you're in the right communities Mm -hmm. and, and looking for evidence-based information and, and engaging with people who are really openly and honestly sharing their stories, you will find people who reflect your experience back to you. Mm-hmm. And like that Nancy's nook on Facebook, you know what I mean? Like what if she never would have created that account? So many yeah. people wouldn't have had that as a resource. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like taking the step and sharing your story. You know, you just, you just never know where it could bring you. Like it brought us here, you know, like speaking at blog her, you know, this, this random thing brought us together and here we are. I know. I you love never, it. You never yeah. know. I think that's sort of like an openness thing too. like always be open to meeting people when you least expect it, like, and connecting on that deeper level. Cause when you meet other people who have gone through chronic illness or, um, you know, mental health challenges, anything that maybe you have also been through, it's like you immediately connect on a deeper level as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's super exciting. What about, I would love to find out your top three joy list. Like what are three things that you turn to that give you unbridled joy? And these, you know, I want them to be things that, you know, you're unwilling to compromise on in your life. So maybe- Number one, marijuana. Oh yeah, bring it on. I love it. Yeah. Kendall has herself a party. Um, <laughs> I'm out there watching The Real Housewives. Just oh my do- God, perfect. Doing my thing. Um, but like just giving myself, permission to do that 
has been life changing. Like I felt so for so long that I was like this terrible mother, you know what I mean? Like the fact that I, and it was all the stigma, you know? Um, but that would be one thing that gives me joy daily. (laughs) That's so great to just my family, just being able to have people that will help me through the day. If it's a hard one. Um, and then three, I'm going to say my pets, like I have a ton of animals. I have a lot of rescue animals. We have a, um, golden retriever that is getting trained to be a service dog lady lady. And she is the biggest gift. Like, Oh, we, over the pandemic, we had a beautiful as a therapy dog or anything, but every time Wyatt would get upset, he would go and lay on her and like pet her. And it was just this huge comfort to our family. And she had a lump on her neck and within a month she was gone. And Wyatt was heartbroken and we all were. And we have two other dogs, they're boy dogs. They're super rough, you know, like, like to rough around and stuff. They're not like calming dogs. (laughs) (laughs) So we decided to, you know, adopt lady, get lady. Um, and just having like a dog, her temperament is so calm. She's always like, she'll go over and lay on Wyatt's lap and just having like that sensory, like that input helps him so much. Um, I feel like everyone that lives with a chronic illness or any, any kind of condition needs an animal. <laughs> like, Yeah. It's no surprise to me that you have so many rescue animals and that you also have rescues like Kevin, who's like a yes. one-eyed cat, you yes. know, it's like that you've taken in some of the broken and battered. That's what my therapist is. <laughs> I mean, but it's like, it's yeah. no wonder, of course you've opened up your home and your heart in that way, because you have been that person. You, you know, it's like, there's a connection there. And people are like, oh my gosh, you know, you're crazy, but, um, no, no, you're not. Animals are the best. Yeah. I'm like, I'm home all day. You know, when we were house hunting, like I knew I was, I wanted to be able to rescue animals. Like, so we're like at the city limit for dogs, like three, (laughs) three dogs dogs and four cats. So my husband's like very happy that there is a limit. Um, (laughs) yeah, I just feel like our house is just so full of love and like, it comes in the form of these pets and like, just, well, it comes yeah. in many forms, doesn't it? Cause yeah, it's like yeah. the, the, the love that you're getting from your kids, from your husband, from your animals, from your community, the wider community, you know, like understanding that love is a many splendored thing. <laughs> I don't know how else to it put it. It doesn't have to look a particular way, you know, yeah. like you don't have to have the whole, I feel like people with like childhood trauma, tra- childhood issues, like their whole lives are thinking like, I need this perfect, like family Christmas this for perfect, like family image. And like, once you get that out of your head, that that's not what family has to look like. Like to me, it's myself, my, my, my father-in-law, my kids, my pets, my best friends, like my, my girl gang, like mm-hmm. that's my family. And those are the people that are going to be there for me, no matter what. Well, and I, we should also mention, I'd be remiss if we didn't also mention at some stage, the fact that because you're also in this plus fashion space, Mm -hmm. you know, this is another form of activism that you're able to partake in daily, but it's something where you're also taking this active role in trying to change narratives, even Mm -hmm. if it's just around what a woman's body needs to look like or what a woman needs to wear. 
the yeah. fact that, that that's a community that you've become such an active member of, it reflects back on all of the other work you're doing and, and makes so much sense in terms of the trajectory of your life from where oh, I'm yeah, sitting. For sure. For sure. I mean, there, I used to be just, I, I didn't get heavy until I got endometriosis. Mm. Um, I gained all of my weight since I got diagnosed the day my husband and I got married, I weighed like 119 pounds. Wow. Yeah. So like I was a tiny person, like, so I know what people treat you like when you're skinny and what people treat you like when you're fat. And it's, um, I think it's cool to have that perspective. Yeah. Um, because I can really recognize the differences, but like also recognize the voids and really try to vocalize that. And like, I don't want to stop at plus size women. Like I want chronically ill women who are plus size or like just women with illnesses or disabilities. Like I want the same visibility for them that plus size women are getting now. Like, How do you even feel about the term plus size? Do you like it? Yeah. I don't mind it. Hmm. I don't, I, I fat, like I say fat all the time. Like it's, um, the terms don't, um, like offend me or in any way. It's just, it's just who I am. And once I accepted it and like accepted my body and stopped looking in the mirror and pointing out all the things that were wrong and instead pointing out the things that like I loved about myself and and started buying clothes that fit right. Like that's a big thing, isn't it? Yes. Like if you go into a store and you're not a, a size 12, you're bigger than that. Like I have that thing. I walk in and I'm like, oh, cool. I'll fit into the extra large. And then you don't. Yeah, no. And, and after my endo diagnosis for years, I wore my husband's sweatpants shirts and um, just kind of settled like into that life. But like, I missed the routine of taking care of myself and getting ready. And like, so then I just started to do that one day. I was like, you know what, I'm going to actually put together an outfit and like, just the way it made me feel better, even though I was in so much pain, like was, was huge. Um, and that's why I make a point to do it every day. Hmm. Cause I know that like just taking that self-care time for me, even if it's only 10 minutes, like to put my hair back and put on mascara, like it makes a world of difference for me. Yeah. I love that. So as we reach the conclusion of this interview, I was wondering if you could share what your ask is for listeners today. What can they do to support you and all the communities that you're part of in your ongoing work? Um, to support me right now, Instagram's really big. Mm-hmm. Um, giving my account a follow would be awesome. Like, Where can they find you? At Kendall Rayburn, K-E-N-D-A-L-L-R-A-Y-B-U-R-N. Um, <laughs> And just, you know, engaging with me there because it helps amplify everything that I'm sharing. Like it's so simple, you know, like someone doing this, the easiest thing of just like liking something or dropping a comment, like helps it boost and get more eyes and like, just get more people to the message that I'm trying to share. Um, and just to like reach as many women as we can to let them know that periods aren't supposed to be painful, you know, like just to ingrain that in their heads because there's so, so many years of people telling us the total opposite. Yeah. That we have to be loud and we have to be heard, you know? I love that. So what's next for you in your, in your health journey and in your advocacy work? Eventually I would like to write my story, you know, to write a book. Um, And it's funny because like I've talked to a couple different publishers about it. Oh, and yay. I can't wait to read this. <laughs> well, actually the people are like, 
you know, people aren't going to want to hear your story. They're going to want to hear from a medical professional. They're not interested in like, Oh, really? Then explain to me, ask me about my uterus and vagina problems. Explain that to me. Right. Right. Um, and like Laura's book, like the, ask me about, Oh, like that freaking, when I was reading her book, I was like in tears. Cause I was like, she's saying exactly how I, like she's putting into words exactly how I'm feeling, you know, exactly how so, so many other women are feeling. And then, um, the know your endo book. Mm. I don't know if you saw that one. Oh yeah. I know of it. It's a, that's a well-known tome in the endo community, but like, that's a really, it, it, you know, for people to be, to be looking for these yeah, these books because they're out there and they're important. Yeah. I think it's awesome. I think like, I've, I've always wanted to write a book. So ever since I was little, um, and I just feel like that would make everything come full circle for me, really like having gone through everything that I've gone through, which is so, so much more than we even discussed, like, and then just being where I am today, I feel like the story could inspire a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you've certainly inspired us today. Oh, thank you. And you inspire I'm, me. Oh, well, it's a mutual a thing. <laughs> um, we're, I mean, this is the thing is like, I think when you, when you meet a kindred spirit, right. Um, you, you automatically connect on a deeper level and we were fortunate to have that happen a couple of years ago. And I'm just so glad that we've had our own full, full circle moment and um, been able to record this interview. And I feel like it'll be the first of many because I feel like there's going to be more as your story continues to unfold. I can't wait to have you back. Yeah. Yeah. Kendall, can you remind everyone again where they can find you if they want to engage with you? Um, my website is kendallrayburn.com and Instagram is Kendall Rayburn. Um, I'm pretty original when it comes to the naming, like you're easy to find, (laughs) you don't got to search too hard. Like just Google Kendall Rayburn. It'll all come up for you. Um, I love that. And we'll link on the webpage for the episode. We'll have all the links, um, for social, for, uh, your website and everything. Um, Is there anything else you want to share with us before we go? Just for whoever has made it to the end. Thank you for listening and taking time out of your day to you know, let us in a little bit. And thanks for hearing my story. I love that. Kendall Rayburn, you are an absolute delight. Thank you so much for so openly and honestly sharing your story and inspiring a lot of us to create additional waves of change and uh, really start looking more deeply at our own experiences. Um, You're amazing. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.